Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week, I speak to Natasha Finlayson, Chief Executive of Working Chance. Working Chance is the UK's only employment charity solely for women with convictions. In this episode, Natasha explains the support they provide to women and the impressive outcomes they achieve, including 90% of women using their employment service securing a job. I'm Natasha Finlayson, and I'm Chief Executive of Working Chance, which is an employment charity for women with convictions. Why was Working Chance set up? What, what's the need for it in our country? So Working Chance was set up uh, in 2009 by my predecessor, Jocelyn Hillman, because um, she spent a lot of time uh, visiting in Holloway Prison and started to understand the sort of the untapped pool of talent, as it were, of, of women uh, in prison and the lack of opportunities for them when they came out uh, and the extent of employer prejudice and, and more broadly societal prejudice against them um, that, that was really holding them back. And she realised that there was a space for, I guess, a recruitment consultancy, really a very niche recruitment consultancy um, that would be there to support these women into jobs and to persuade employers um, of their talents. So that's kind of how we were set up. I think we're a bit we're quite different today. We certainly don't think of ourselves as a recruitment consultancy. We're a charity uh, and have a slightly different perspective, but we're still fundamentally doing the same thing, supporting women with convictions with their employability and ultimately to get a job and a sustainable, meaningful job, ideally. And how have you found people's attitudes um how have they changed, if at all, since sort of 2009? Do you think people are getting slightly more open-minded about it? Um, do you think it's getting worse? What are you seeing on the, on the front line? In terms of employer attitudes, I think there are shifts, but not that much, actually, because if you, if you look at... Um, there was sort of some market research done by an organisation called Working Links back in 2010, and then there was a big piece of YouGov research commissioned by the DWP, in 2016. So our market research that we've just done enables us to track back against those other two surveys and see how much things have changed. And they've changed far less, I think, than we were actually hoping. Um, so 
a quarter of all the employers that we spoke to said that they would be definitely concerned about the idea of employing anybody with a conviction. And another 35% said they'd probably be concerned. So that actually means that 60%, you know, if we extrapolate out of our very large sample, 60% of employers are saying that they'd have quite a significant worry or concern about employing someone with a conviction. And that's more that we asked them about other groups as well. Um, so, for example, people with harmful substance use, uh, people who are homeless, people with severe mental Ill health, long term unemployed. And they were less concerned about all of those groups, which really does tell us, I think we've still got quite a long way to go in terms of educating employers who are, of course, you know, just kind of reflective of wider society. So I guess helping people outside the criminal justice sector to understand um, that these are people first and foremost to see the person, not the offence. Um, to yeah. to understand that 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 risk is really that that is is really a misconception. Was your research able to extrapolate sort of out um, whether employers actually said, well, it depends what the offence was, because clearly it could be anything from murder to um, a, a driving offence, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in fact, we did absolutely have a list of offences which started with driving offence and the bottom one was, right. was murder in terms of how people, okay. people listed how much that would affect them. But the variations there were not as much as you would think. So still a, a reasonable proportion of people who wouldn't employ anybody with a driving offence, you know, and regardless of when the driving offence was or, or the circumstances. So... Again, you know, no, I'm sorry, I think the prejudices really are quite deep-seated or, or, you know, if we're going to be kind about it, let's say lack of awareness, lack of understanding of of the risk that people with a conviction present. And and as you say, that just, you know, the kind of the variety of offences and when it was committed and, um, you know, kind of mitigating factors or, you know, kind of contextual factors, um, you know, there, is, there isn't that nuance, really, I think, in, in employer attitudes. And are you talking about women who have served a prison sentence or is this women who might have served a community sentence or just had a fine? So the research is about people with convictions, so both men and women, um, and we didn't specify kind of when the conviction okay. would be. And, you know, and as I say, we use the language ex-offender um, because yeah. that's, that then helps us to kind of track back against pre- uh, previous yeah. surveys that use the same terminology. Okay, but it wasn't particularly people who'd come out of prison. No, and I think just as an illustration of that, the, the sort of the lack of awareness and understanding and nuance in these sort of judgments and prejudices, 30% of employers said that they would automatically exclude from any consideration in, in a recruitment process anybody with an unspent conviction. So, you know, I think, again, it just really points to the fact that we've all just got to do so much more in terms of educating the public. I mean, that's very much part of Working Chances' mission explicitly. We do believe that's a really important part of our job to help people to understand, um, you know, I mean, particularly with women, the factors that that so often underlie their offending and, you know, the kind of the pathways that they've taken into criminalisation. But also then just to, for, for employers particularly, to understand the level of risk, which really is, there's no evidence to show that it's any more risky to employ someone with a conviction than someone who doesn't have a conviction. Exactly. And and I talk about this all the time. You know, even if someone has committed a violent act, it doesn't make them a risk. You know, those two things need to be separated out and a certain level of intelligence and analysis needs to go into making a judgment. 
But of course, it's much easier, I guess, from someone in an organisation to say, right, we're going to have a blanket ban on X, Y and Z. But I remember from my days with the Clink restaurant chain and getting men and women out into the workplace, our chief executive at the time would say, well, look, if you want to know how this person's behaved over the, over the last five years, um, I can give you so much information on this person. Or you can recruit someone off the street that could tell you anything and you have no control or any way of working out whether they're telling the truth or not. So that was quite an interesting way that our chief executives sort of cut through. You could see people going, oh, you, yeah, I guess I get so much more information about this person. Exactly. You know, most employers really don't know who they've kind of got working there. But, but as you say, you do know if, if someone's disclosed a conviction. Um, I mean, I get, you know, some of the, the sort of things that were being thrown up in the research that because we're trying to kind of just tease under the surface and kind of get get into what actually are the, the fears? What are the beliefs? You know, and they were throwing up sort of things like that they thought the person would be unreliable. 66% of employers said they thought someone with a conviction would be unreliable. They might be out of touch with the workplace. They might have problematic social skills. Uh, 61% said they might pose a risk to other employees. I think touching on that point, it's about what we hold in mind when the word ex-offender is vocalised. And depending maybe on what type of media you consume... Some people will think, oh, well, I'm very open-minded and it could mean anything from, you know, uh, wrong place, wrong time, driving offence, or it could, you know, it could go all the way to the extremes of paedophilia, murder, you know. Um, But then some people will just think, well, any ex-offender is obviously violent and a risk and that is that and cannot see anything beyond that viewpoint. I think that the the sort of the punitive approach to criminal justice rather than rehabilitative goes deeper than sometimes we in the sector think. Um, you know, I like most people in charities, I probably live in a bit of a liberal bubble echo chamber kind of thing. And talking to people about these issues just never, it's, it's always a reminder that, that most people don't see it that way, don't really think about rehabilitation. Um, I mean, even when I took this role up um, three and a half years ago, um, some good friends said, um, you know, jokingly said, uh, oh, well, you'll have to watch where you leave your handbag then, won't you? You know, which is very awkward because I thought, don't laugh. You know, I mean, don't don't collude with it. That's not a good thing to say. But but then at a dinner party with good friends, you know, how are you going to respond? But, you know, I mean, you know, but I don't want to sort of come across as holier than thou and, and sort of preachy. But, you know, and and before I took this role up, I probably to some extent had some of those attitudes. I've spent most of my career working with children um, uh, who've, who've experienced abuse. So as far as um, people whose offence was, was child abuse, I probably had far more simplistic kind of punitive view, a sort of, you know, um, not, not really focused on rehabilitation or understanding um, where that kind of offending comes from. But now I see things differently, you know, and I do. Yeah. Um, I think rehabilitation is so incredibly important, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's in all of our interests, including the people who need to be rehabilitated. It's a sort of win-win thing, isn't it? And it's really important that we do it and do it correctly. Um, I was going to ask you on the sort of... I guess, the education of employers. Mm-hmm. How is that best done? Because that's quite tricky, isn't it? Is it just down to the person who runs that organisation to kind of broaden their mind and try and go on an educational journey themselves and thinking about 
how they want their organisation to be. And of course, the person in the organisation that always brings to mind when we're talking about things like this is um, James Timpson, who runs and is the CEO of the uh, Timpson chain of shops. And he's, of course, a great advocate in this space. Does everyone have to be a James Timpson to sort of... (laughs) Um, I mean, of course, yeah, that Timpsons is the example to split that springs to mind and kind of Greggs and Holfords. And there are some kind of real sort of well-known brands like that, where if you were to survey the public, you know, you might even get a good response and people saying, oh, yeah, they employ people who've been in prison. It's good they do that, you know. But um, I think sort of to, to your point about that education piece, it's probably not just the people who run the company. I think it's good if it includes... Um, the people who run the company and then sort of HR directors in large organisations. But it has to be a whole organisation thing because sometimes when we've placed women into roles with companies, um, occasionally there'll, there'll be some sort of little stumbling blocks blocks once they're in post. Um, and that comes down to their immediate line manager and the co- their colleagues alongside them. Maybe they find out something about the, the offending that wasn't known to them. Perhaps that wasn't all shared with the line manager. Perhaps the line manager is being overly solicitous and kind of treating them unequally in a, in a really well-intentioned way and constantly asking them how they are and <laughs> this sort of thing. Um, you know, I've heard of quite a few examples of where a a manager has sat down with the rest of the team and the person and shared the person's conviction with them in in a kind of well-intentioned way, wanting to be really open and transparent so there's no gossip and no Googling and, you know, this this person did this, would you like to say a bit about it to the person with warning? So that there's all there's, there's a lot of kind of compelling arguments as to why it should be a whole company thing that everybody understands and everything buys it, that everybody buys into, that isn't feel doesn't feel like it's imposed on the organisation from above because it's got to, everyone's got to understand where it's coming from and, and how they should treat colleagues with convictions if they know that they have colleagues with convictions. And the answer to that is, of course, no differently from how you treat everyone else in the vast majority of cases, unless there is a, a particular support need that their line manager should be aware of. Um, so when we when we talk to employers, Edwina, we're, we're um, very mindful about what their motivation is. So we don't just accept any employer who rings up. And goodness me, there's a lot of them ringing up over the last few months with the labour shortages. We don't have to approach any companies. They are all coming to us all around the country. I mean, it's so different to to how it would have been pre-Brexit and pre-pandemic before the labour shortages. Um, But as I say, we don't take all of them. We go through quite a a gentle but firm process of asking certain questions and trying to explore the motivation and then just a few kind of sort of ethical considerations and do they have, you know, diversity and inclusion policies and, and, and pay fairly and all that sort of thing. So with your cohort of women, how many would you say come out of prison or have come out of prison? So with the women that we work with at Working Chance, um, actually less than half have served custodial sentences. And for those who have been in prison, it's not normally straight away afterwards because, you know, I mean, you know this very well, but life is so incredibly complicated for women when they have left prison in, in many ways differently, I think, from men. Um, so if they have children, have they, who's been looking after the children? Have they gone into care? Are they being looked after by a family member who perhaps doesn't want to hand them back? Um, you know, kind of around 60% of women leaving prison don't have safe and secure accommodation to go to, um, you know, kind of debt, all of these different things that they're struggling with. So getting a job, while that would you know, arguably be helpful, probably isn't the first thing on their minds. You know, they're not really in a, in a sort of a mental place where they can be job hunting and kind of going to interviews. 
Um, so for women who've come out of prison, it's often some months or even some years later that they come to us. And there'll be some women whose conviction was many, many years ago in their past, but is still holding them back in terms of getting or sustaining jobs or moving on in their career. It could be that it's something that comes up in enhanced disclosures. So it's a barrier in that way. Um, and they have to disclose every time they apply for a new job and they yeah. dread doing that. And they probably had awful experiences of doing it. Um, or it could also be that it's still, you know, perhaps the circumstances that led to the offence and then the experience of being in the criminal justice system are still affecting the woman and her, you know, her view of herself and, and her confidence and self-worth and so on. Uh, and that's absolutely something that we're really happy to help those women with as well. I was going to ask whether you knew how many people, I saw a stat recently, but um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it correct, but how many people in the population actually have a conviction, whether it's serious or very, very minor, because often they are very, very minor, aren't they? And they might have happened to someone when they were 18 years old, yet you have a 45-year-old man who is still being held back from something stupid that they did when they were 18, where no one particularly got hurt and it wasn't a, a major incident. And I did see a stat somewhere that I think it was one in six people in the population have a conviction. I think it's 11 million, so I can't quite do the maths, but I'm sure that that, that sounds like right, people. one in six. It really, really, really is, isn't it? And I think and telling people that just gets across to them that, you know, that this is not a kind of tiny minority of criminally minded people who are really different from the rest of us. You know, that it kind of could happen to any of us. And I'm sure that... I and most of the people I know have broken the law at some point in their lives in some way, whether they knew it or not. Absolutely. And in a time, as you as you rightly said, in the sort of labour shortages that we're seeing, and then if you couple that with the amount of people who apparently have a conviction, you know, that's kind of disastrous. So surely people are going to have to start moving in a slightly more open-minded way in order yes. to get the people into the jobs that we need to. Absolutely. And they are. And that's why those, you know, that, that we've had this exponential increase in employers approaching us. Um, and while I most definitely don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, um, it, I'd like to be more hopeful that this is a, you know, a, a sustainable change in attitude, let's put it that way. So, uh, you know, I don't want it to be something that's purely expedient where, you know, let's characterise this really negatively, for example, it could be that that the mindset consciously or not of employers is, oh my goodness me, we have got a desperate shortage, we can't go through the normal recruitment channels, let's lower the barriers, let's lower the standards, we will take anybody. So we throw out our usual kind of, you know, sort of policies that might exclude certain groups. So that's a really negative characterisation of it. I guess the, the best characterisation is that they are becoming more open-minded um, and by the very fact of engaging with organisations like Working Chance and others like us um, means that they are open to those discussions and you get a foot in the door then, don't you? Then you can start to have those conversations about, you know, could we talk to you a little bit about the sorts of backgrounds that, that women might have had, you know, and whether or not you might treat them differently in terms of any extra support. This is this might be how you want to handle things at interview and maybe you don't want to do this, you know. So it is enabling us to have dialogue with, with you know, across sectors, across industries, across the country with all sorts of different employers, which is most definitely a good thing. But when the labour shortages stop, let's hope that they stay being so open-minded. Exactly. And of course, in some circumstances, actually people want 
women with experience of the justice system and particularly in the third sector. You know, it's a real asset, certainly to people for people like me who run organizations like mine and yours and 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 many others to actually have someone with that experience really enhances the work that you do. Absolutely, yeah. And so um, working with charities for us is, you know, a completely different ball ballgame. Um, they completely get it. They're incredibly keen to increase the proportion of lived experience staff, you know. Um, and the same thing goes for us at Working Chance as an employer. So some of our staff are, um, absolutely have convictions and some have, in fact, been clients of ours and gone through our service. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think one of the real positives that we can take from this is that the more employers are actually giving opportunities to specifically women with convictions in in working chances case the more of them will have good experiences because all of the research and, and indeed our market research bore this out is that when employers do employ people with convictions overwhelmingly the experience is positive you know in our survey 86 percent of those who'd done it said that the people had performed well 90 percent of them said that um, the people with convictions had settled really well into the organization got on well with colleagues you know and there's a wealth of other research that bears this out so the more people that do it you know they will the vast majority of them will have a good experience and then they can be employers like you know Greg's and Timpsons who are able to sort of stand up at within those sort of employer networks or, or in on the media and say actually this has worked really well for us in all sorts of ways and we really recommend that other employers do the same thing. And going back to your organisation as a whole could you give me some sort of idea let's take a woman in prison for example and she's coming out or she's come out could you give the listener a bit a bit of a picture of like how and when she might get in contact with you and what you do and what the process looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so women hear about us a range of different ways where, you know, we do prison radio ads um, and all sorts of agencies within um, HNPPS and other charities working with these women will recommend our services for someone who's a woman with the commission is looking for a job. So they normally contact us through our website or through phoning us and then we'll um, arrange a registration call where we talk to the woman about kind of what she's looking for, what her expectations are, how our service works just to make sure that it's right for her I mean really the only criteria are that you have to be a woman or identify as a woman and you have to have had a conviction at some point we don't want to exclude anybody um, although if someone is you know really still um, kind of addicted to class A drugs and still struggling with that um, or if they are actually in the middle of a mental health crisis then it's not so much that we're not going to accept them it's more that we're not the right service for them at that point and we'll actively help them to to find other agencies um, but if we are what the woman wants then she gets matched up with one of our employability coaches who then sort of forms a, a trusting relationship with her to really understand what she's good at and what her strengths are. So we're very, very much focused on women's strengths rather than, you know, any kind of perceived deficit. Um, And they're all trained as um, careers coaches so they can kind of use sort of tools and techniques to to actually help the woman to reflect for herself on where she wants to go. Um, And uh, we'll help her with her CV, with interview skills, um, with kind of building confidence. And I think probably the the intervention that the women value the most is helping them with disclosure at interviews, um, which is just such a complex area, isn't it? It's, it's not about telling a woman, this is how you do it, this is what you're legally required to disclose and at what moment, and you know, and this is how you might say it, because it's such a, 
an emotional minefield telling you know complete strangers something so personal that's often tied up with with kind of feelings of deep shame um and then you know kind of sharing with them perhaps some of the, the context around that offending which again is probably tied up with histories of trauma um the childhood trauma or present trauma involving domestic abuse um or you know mental Ill health drugs etc so telling such personal stuff in an interview situation is something that most of us would never dream of or have to kind of contemplate doing. No, and and often the person on the receiving end, you have to be a certain sort of person to be able to hear appropriately and receive that type of information and not to say something insensitive. That is so, so true, Edwina. Um, And, you know, I have to say, when we've worked with corporate volunteers in the past to do practice interviews to get to give women more experience of what that would be like if they do need to and want to disclose in an interview, um, you know, sure, there have been kind of failures of empathy or even something that looks a bit like prurience. We're like, oh, my God, that's so awful. Tell me more, which are grossly inappropriate. But then the, the reaction... Um, that really throws me when I see it is when in these mock interviews, and these are experienced interviewers from big companies, they start crying in the middle of a woman's Uh, disclosure. And then it's sort of, you know, trying to explain to them that, yeah, we understand that the tears come from empathy and from a, you know, a good place, but that's not appropriate and it doesn't send the right signal to the woman. It stops them talking and they end up kind of having to console the interviewer. The point being that that's that's kind of one of the most important building blocks of our service um, and is really something that women are looking for from us. When and we also offer free psychotherapy for up to a year for, for once a week for any woman who needs it as well, which um, can be really life changing for these women, most of whom can't afford um, yeah, private, private therapy. And you'll know <laughs> just how much um, most of them do need that. Um, so once they consider themselves to be work ready, um, and we do as well, then they're passed over to one of our employment advisors um, within the charity, who again, again, that's, you know, kind of a trusting relationship, they get to know the woman, uh, and then they start to look at the employers that we have on our books and the sorts of vacancies we've got. If the woman wants to then just do her own job searching, you know, and she wants support on that, that's great, we'll, we'll help her with that. But if she would like to know what vacancies we might be able to kind of point her to Towards, then we'll do that and we'll really a bit like again like a recruitment consultant we will kind of be the liaison point between the woman and the employer and kind of set everything up and then once a woman is in a role we support her and the employer for up to a year after that because sustainability is key it is not about ticking boxes about getting women into any old job as some you know kind of statutory agencies might have taken that approach in the past it is about her thriving and flourishing in that role, building a career um, and and seeing herself differently, reaping all the rewards of that, of, of um, you know, kind of believing that she's worth something, that, you know, that she's valued and accomplished um, and, and fulfilling herself. Um, how many women do you work with? I see from your website that um, it says that 90% of women go on to secure a job, which is phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal, yeah, and I think that that is a real testament to that work that we do with them before we start the job-seeking bit, so the stuff that's more about kind of 
emotional and psychological readiness um, and also making sure that that she's at a place in her life where she can really commit to this as well so helping with that that you know stuff around kind of debt and housing uh, domestic violence um, worries about children helping with her with all that stuff so that she's got the best chance of getting the right job and and flourishing in it so yep so our success rate um, is really high yeah around about 90 percent of women will secure a job and then how many women a year roughly do you work with? Yeah, roughly with? about 100 women a year. Um, but okay. I would say that we support many more women than that because that's only the women that we've placed into roles. So many women in our service will find their own jobs. Some of them will decide that actually when they're, you know, they've, they've gone through psychotherapy, they've been, you know, doing the careers coaching, talking about what they want from life. Um, and they might decide that actually that isn't what they want, you know, and that's absolutely fine. Maybe they just want to concentrate on being a mum, a mum, on building relationships, on kind of working on themselves. You know, there's no compulsion that they have to see it through to the end and get into a job because it's it's the service that is designed around what they want and what flourishing and thriving and, and sort of resetting their lives looks like for them. Yeah, and it's so um, amazing that you do that because I was thinking, you know, the amount of friends of mine who have, you know, been career people, had babies, and then you have your children, everything changes, and then it changes again when your children grow up and every stage your child gets to, everything changes again. And actually to have someone there to give you career advice and to bounce things off is so sort of vital, you know. I've been lucky enough to have a little, I sort it out for myself just to sort of help with who I am, where am I going, what's the point of me? You know, all those big questions that we all ask ourselves. Um, so it's amazing that this is available to, to those women yeah. who really need yeah. it. And for the majority of them, um, it's something that they, they haven't had before. And when we look at sort of evaluation from, from women of our service, um, you know, the stats are all... Um, good but then if you actually look at the the old-fashioned kind of um, evaluation which is feedback what do the women actually say and the quotes are just lovely and they are things like you know they will always kind of single out the particular um, colleague that they worked with and say you know um, Alex or whoever it is you know was amazing and she really helped me believe in herself and she really seemed to like me and that changed my perception of myself and finally I think I'm worth something you know I do deserve to do well in life so it's that's the typical kind of feedback is that mind mindset changes um, about their worth fundamentally. So another area of your work is policy and research so could you explain a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a working chance, we don't think that policy work is, is an add-on. It's not a kind of a poor cousin to the service work. Um, we think it's it's our kind of ethical duty, both to help individual women, but also to, to challenge and seek to change institutional injustice and system failure. Because this is what we are hearing from women. This is, this is you know, underlies the criminalisation of so many women is that systems have failed them, that there's been discrimination, um, that there's been poverty, that there's been trauma, and those things have not been responded to uh, in a helpful way. And in fact, you know, that we are actually criminalising poverty and trauma, I think, so often in the in this country. So, um, as I say, we think it's absolutely crucial that we're using what we learn from women and that we are working alongside those women who want to use their voices and their experiences in that way 
to influence policy makers, to talk to civil servants, to talk to ministers, to talk to people in HMPPS um, about what we're learning and about how things could be better. So that's an incredibly important part of what we do. How many staff do you have? Just want to get an idea of how big, small you are. So um, there's about 20 of us. Um, I think we're, we're recruiting at the moment, but um, yeah, so about 20. We are a really, really small charity. We are just under a million in terms of our annual income. So yeah, by any judgment, we're a small charity. Um, but we're one of those charities that people always say, you know, they punch above their weight. So our coverage is kind of UK wide in terms of where the women come from, where the employers come from. As we've already said, our success rate, you know, we've got a great model. What we do really works in terms of getting those those employment those life-changing employment outcomes. So what are your needs as an organisation? If you were to look to the sort of short, medium, even long term, if you want, but you never know sort of who's listening and um, wondered if there were any sort of asks you might have. So, you know, like every other charity, sustainable funding is, is the holy grail for us because we need to be able to plan our service. We need to be able to, to grow. We can reach, you know, we can help so many more women um, so we want um, we want increased awareness of our service among those among women who could benefit from it and among all the agencies and charities and organisations working with those women. Please refer them to us. We have capacity to be helping many more women right now. Um, in terms of funding, most of our money, but again, like most charities, comes from grant making trusts. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we'd, we'd love to hear from more funders who are interested in investing in what we do because it works. Yeah, well, we'll make sure that all your details are in the footnotes of the podcast. But obviously, if anyone wants to get hold of you, they can Google the name Working Chance and probably find you easily that way. And hopefully this podcast will go a small way to amplifying your work as well. So thank you so much for taking me through the work of, uh, of your organisation and good luck with it. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? 
yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 